This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we are pleased to speak with four women who work for Air Navigation Services Provider, ANSL. That's Air Navigation Solutions Limited. We also talk with the president of Hartzell Propeller. It's coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 716 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight. I'm still camping across the country, so as we explained previously, we'll be going off our usual format and bring you some interviews that we recently recorded. We have two this week. First, I spoke with four women from Air Navigation Solutions Limited, or ANSL, that company provides air navigation services for Edinburgh and Gatwick airports. We wanted to discuss their experiences as women in the aviation industry. Here it is. I'm Max Flight, and joining me are four guests this episode, and they have two things in common that I know of. First is they're all women, and second is they work at ANSL, Air Navigation Solutions Limited. Now, ANSL is the air navigation service provider for Edinburgh and Gatwick airports. They also provide simulation training for Cambridge City Airport and some other things as well. Now, September 24th, 2022 is the annual Girls in Aviation Day. That's, of course, hosted by Women in Aviation International. And our guests are here to discuss their experiences as women in the aviation industry. So let's introduce our guests. Now, I'll go around the virtual table and ask each of you to tell us your current position at ANSL and maybe just give a brief description of your responsibilities. So, Sophie, we'll start with you. Sophie Mills. Hi. So uh, I'm a project manager at ANSL, and um, what I do on a day-to-day basis is deliver a variety of different things for various customers um, across the UK aviation industry. Typical things that I've done is create training packages at Gatwick Airport, also completed asset replacements um, at Gatwick and Edinburgh airports, and currently working through um, proposals that we can take to the UK market, which may not yet exist. Very good. All right, Sharon Utting, how about you? Um, I am head of finance, so um, I am all things finance within the company, I'm accountable person for that role. Um, so I deal with anything to do um, with money coming in, money going out, um, reporting to the various stakeholders, parent company in Germany, um, all of the government agencies, um, and making sure that our cash comes in and stays where it should be. Okay, that's always very important, of course. Yeah. And we have Vicky Bogle-Hunt with us also. Hello, um, I'm an air traffic control operations specialist with ANSL. Um, I've got over 25 years experience within the industry, uh, mostly as an air traffic controller, but most recently in the last three years, uh, facilitating the project managers and implementing uh, project asset project replacements across the UK at various different units. 
And most currently, I'm seconded into Cambridge City Airport as their manager of air traffic services. So within my role, um, we do go out and help partners uh, with uh, with different solutions. Very good. And also, finally, Emma Hawksworth. Hi, I uh, head up the business intelligence department with ANSL. Um, and that's basically everything data related. So it's it's from understanding the data that we collect and that's available to us as an organization from our own operations, but also data that's available more widely from public networks, from public databases, um, and very much focusing on turning that data into usable, valuable intelligence to make decisions from um, and to drive forward different actions and responses to things um, and generate insights. So very much a uh, Let's take this, these lists and lists of data and turn them into something useful. All right. Well, very good. So for context, uh, let's get a little more information about ANSL. I mean, I think we've uh, gotten some of that flavor through your descriptions of your responsibilities. But more broadly, who'd like to uh, describe what the company offers more broadly? Who wants to take that on? Um, I can have a go. Go ahead, Sharon. We were um, created back in 2016 um, when a company in Germany, um, DFS, decided that they would, when the air traffic was liberalised and commercialised within the UK market, um, decided that they would um, try and win that contract from Nats. They were successful in that bid. So, um, of course, they needed a company to actually run that um, after deciding that that was the best option um, and not kind of host it as a satellite from Germany. So we are 100% owned by DFS. And quite quickly after that, we were then um, we were then awarded the contract we um, tendered and won the contract for Edinburgh. So that was about 2018. So the company was grown very quickly um, within that period of time, and it, it's a massive undertaking to become um, an air navigation service provider in its own right. So much legislation, um, bureaucratic red tape, you know, as you would imagine in, in being able to um, produce and deliver something like that. So once that had kind of been established, um, we started, Henry kind of came in as a MD and started to grow the business into the direction that he saw. And as part of that, the commercial department was also then grown. So um, myself and our commercial director, Caroline, came in about three years ago to kind of head up and create that department. So a lot has then been um, created off of the back of that commercial department. So um, all of the project management, the asset replacements, the new way of thinking of delivering air traffic, um, secondments, just everything out of the core, other than the core service of ultimately delivering the air traffic provision at the airport has kind of developed under that umbrella. So, um, yeah, so... One of our true values is catalyst for change, and we certainly embody that um, and live that on a day-to-day basis because we are continuously looking at how we can change the way air traffic is delivered. So it's a relatively young company then, having formed recently. Uh, Sophie, uh, before you started working there, did did you have another uh, career or did you have another job or was it in aviation? 
Yeah, it was. I worked with um, Gatwick Airport as a construction project manager for about two years before I joined ANSL. Um, so that was my first, um, I suppose, dip into the aviation industry and evidently really enjoyed it, which is what brought me to then uh, apply for a role at ANSL. Um, obviously, ANSL at the time were uh, operating Gatwick Airport. Um, so I understood the campus really well. I understood what I could bring to the company. And then prior to that, I was a civil engineer at London Underground for nine years. So I took a complete change of direction from railway into aviation, which aren't too dissimilar. But um, aviation is particularly hot on the compliance uh, side, a uh, lot more than railway is. But then planes can move and trains, you know, can't really go anywhere other than the tracks. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was quite um, that was quite a change. But ultimately, uh, it's one I've really enjoyed and have found really challenging, but in a, in a really good and positive way, particularly with, as Sharon said, with what ANSL are doing in terms of trying to change the UK market for the better and for the smaller airports as well, I think, um, you know, can really buy into that and try and make that difference. Uh, Vicky, how about you? Did you come into this with an aviation background or something else? No, aviation. So I um, left school at the age of 18, went straight into air traffic control. So um, for the last 25 years, I've been in within the industry. So I've worked for multiple different ANSPs, mainly as a, as an air traffic controller, but joined ANSL three years ago to help facilitate in building up the commercial department, like Sharon is saying. So Currently, my role is non-operational um, and I bring all the expertise of being an operational controller and an operational manager um, to the table to facilitate things like asset replacement projects, also innovative um, solutions to help design them, to bring them forward to the commercial market, to see how we can go out there and, and help our partners within the industry outside of the NSL business format. So, uh, yeah, quite a few years of um, experience. What was it about air traffic control that originally caught your attention? It was actually the fact that, um, well, originally I wanted to be a pilot. Um, and then I actually went up to see uh, Heathrow Control Tower and just caught that buzz and thought, well, rather than flying one plane, why not control multiple planes at once? And I really liked the idea of just seeing how dynamic and different and exciting um, and the thrill of the, the just the environment that you work in and the, the thrill and the excitement that the people that you work around are, are sort of giving off was just electric. And then um, that was it. I was hooked. I was hooked from 15 and thought that's exactly the industry I want to go into. And also the fact that though I didn't see one female face at the time uh, in the tower that I visited and I thought, right, that's what I want to do. Oh, excellent. It's not exactly a sleepy kind of job, is it? Well, it depends what time of day you're looking at it, I suppose, oh. but no, generally not. <laughs> oh, that's true. I guess it's not always... No, we're uh, on the ball all the time, 24-7, obviously. Yeah. Emma, how about you? What was your uh, background coming into uh, ANSL? So mine, I've, I went down a couple of routes. Um my intention growing up and going through college and then uni and everything was to pursue a career in finance. So I studied finance and investment. And then I, it's very windy. I spent my placement year in a um, headhunting firm, asset management headhunting firm, which was the link with the finance piece, the asset management world. And then following graduation, I'd really enjoyed my year in the, the headhunting firm. I thought, actually, do you know what? I'm really enjoying working with people, helping them kind of progress their careers. So maybe I'll go down the recruitment route. 
Um, so I dabbled in that for a while, which didn't work out for me. It was not the right fit, but a very interesting learning curve because I think the number of things that I learned through that role, both the good and the bad, things that were a good fit for me and the things that didn't really work for me were incredibly beneficial. And actually, I owe a lot of, of what I can do in my career and, and my skill set now to that. And then at the point of realizing it wasn't the right fit, I very much kind of drew a line in the sand, stood back and thought, right, okay, I did spend six months in private banking upon graduation. It was very similar to aviation, actually, very highly regulated industry, but that didn't really fit. I think going into private banking as a fresh graduate, you are, it was the kind of paperwork, paper pushing, admin type stuff, which, you know, I recognize you need to build up from the bottom, but it was quite repressive. The business wasn't the right fit for me at the stage, I think. So at that point, then I looked back on my year and headhunting quite favorably, thought, right, okay, something people focus might work for me, went down the recruitment route. Um, and again, it wasn't quite the right fit. Um, so at that point, having tried a couple of different things, I very much sort of stopped and went, okay, let's, let's assess the market. Let's assess where I am, what my skills are, what I enjoy, what I don't. Um, and rather than looking at the job that I wanted to do, I stood back and thought about the industry that I want to work in. So what environment do I find interesting so that whatever the job is that's within that, actually there's enough in the industry that it interests me um, and hopefully I can find my place within that, whatever it might look like. That for me was aviation. Um, my my dad's worked within the aviation industry for a while, so it was always something that was quite present growing up. And to Vicky's point about air traffic being the excitement and the thrill of it, it for me it was always the it's such an unknown. I mean, you see these planes flying around in the sky, and the fact that we've managed to make these incredibly heavy, huge things fly around the world and you don't ever really get much insight into what goes on behind the scenes of all of that. And it's such a sort of unknown but familiar piece of our lives. And I found it really, really interesting, all the engineering and the, the, the how we've managed to create this um, kind of from nowhere. And that was that was really what gripped me. And then I've sort of stumbled my way around and, and wound up in analytics. So it's been a bit of a windy journey with a very intentional point in the middle of, okay, aviation, let's let's pursue that and see where I, see where I wind up. I've always thought that was fascinating that uh, if you look at an aviation company, any, you know, any company um, that uh, is in, uh, in that industry, you'll find people that are there for the profession that they're in, and that might be finance or HR or manufacturing or whatever it is. That's what really uh, excites them. And then other people who are excited about aviation itself. And it's uh, always fascinating to me to have that sort of that mixture of perspectives um, within a company. I know when uh, when I was in the in the jet engine business, everybody that I met who was not in aviation always assumed that everybody flew airplanes that worked there. Everybody um, knew how to uh, maintain jet engines. You know, it, it, it just doesn't work that way. Sharon, where do you, where do you fall in that spectrum? Were you coming uh, into it as a uh, an interest in aviation per se, or or more the profession? Probably the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I did. I kind of have had a circular route. So when I left school, I didn't know what I wanted to do, um, and ended up doing a travel and tourism 
BTEC National Diploma. And I kind of did that because I thought, oh, I get to travel and it's, it, it sounds quite interesting, the course. So, um, but living and growing up around Gatwick, Gatwick was always a very big presence um, in all of the, our conversations about, you know, where we were going to end up. So straight out of college, I'm, I got a job at Avios. So it was air travel, um, air miles travel promotions. So it's the kind of um, the executive club, BA executive club um, and all of the air miles that people um collect and then use for flights and hotels and things like that so I joined them very when they were very small and kind of grew with them so the company grew at an exceptional rate and I went through many different stages of going into their call centre and thinking oh my god I hate this with a passion um, then going into customer relations and think yeah I hate this just as much um, and then I was very lucky that my manager at the time in customer relations just said what are you doing with your life you know how what 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 is your end goal and I said well I don't know uh, you know I was still 22 and didn't know what was what I really wanted to do and she said well I think you'd be a really good accountant so I went oh, okay all right so I started um she bullied the finance director at the time to give me a job so I moved into finance um, and then I spent eight years studying for my two qualifications so um it was at that point um, I had my just after that I had my son. And so I left um, the kind of airline industry and I went into pie manufacturing. So completely different wow. um, and spent spent nine years um, in that industry, which was amazing. I put on a lot of weight um, <laughs> eating the pies. So, Sharon, um, what's your favorite? What's your favorite pie? Oh god, yeah, that it's got to be um, beef and red wine. It was really good, <laughs> really good. Um, and I kind of, again, it was. I've always seemed to have gone into very fast moving, changing companies, and I suppose that's what gives me the passion. So I go in and I will change, and I will look, and I will build things up from the bottom upwards. Um, and I had the opportunity to do that here. So um, we weren't really, we were established as a team, but not really. Um, there was still a lot of things that had to be changed within the department and and created within the company. Um, so that's what I came in to do. So I was brought in very much as the coming and, you know, take it to what you need it to be. All right, Vicky, we all know that this is a, a male-dominated industry, pretty much through and through. In your experience as an air traffic controller, did you have difficulties sort of establishing your credibility? I think it's um, it's actually quite a difficult one to answer, really. Um, when I first started, there weren't many women in the industry, but I wasn't 100% sure whether it was just where I was or whether it was the whole industry being so young at the time. I don't think that it was difficult for me per se, but as I moved through, if you like, after initially getting my head down and qualifying, I did notice that all of the people really around me were male who were in managerial roles. Um, and very slowly, the ladies that, that were around me were breaking that mould, but it was requiring quite a bit of a, uh, quite a bit of determination, really. 
and you would hear things well you know things that you wouldn't get away with saying these days really around anybody sort of flitting around and you think well actually that's not the case it's it's not the case at all so I was quite fortunate I think within the the within the units that I worked at that it wasn't such a prominent thing and if it was it was definitely masked quite a bit it wasn't in in the forefront but equally so it wasn't nobody was pushing either to get an equilibrium so whilst there wasn't any outward yes it's you know it's not a lady's world there was no there was no drive to to make that sort of equal opportunity exist hmm interesting yeah uh, one thing that i often hear from uh, women in discussing their their careers is the oftentimes the importance of either a role model or a mentor or an advisor or something like that. Uh, did did any of you all experience that in a way that was important to your career development? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think for me, one of the, the main things was one of my female colleagues at the time who was really striving and she was showing that she could do everything. She was a mother, a wife, you know, doing stuff and doing an um uh, a master's outside of all of that time and she was striving to be in management she was getting ticking all those boxes without uh, without being forceful it, upon anybody she was just her normal self and so for me that was a huge eye-opener she was a great role model she still is today she knows about it so I often say to her that I'm kind of following her around everywhere but uh you know so from that perspective she absolutely was but equally from a from a female perspective she definitely was but I've had various role models who have been male but I haven't seen the I haven't I personally haven't noticed the gender difference if you see what I mean it's almost like I really like the way that they've done their careers I like the way that they've handled that situation I'd like to learn from them about how they've handled that situation and it's got nothing to do with being them being a different gender so yeah absolutely I've had two types one definitely because well she was great. She was, you know, a pillow strength and, and did it as though it was just nothing to her. Um, and equally, you know, various different role models for various different occasions, really. I yeah, I think I agree with that. I definitely believe that if you can't see it, you don't know it's possible. I think that's a massive part of what I've learned um, throughout my career. And I've definitely had role, you know, mentors that are female who are in, you know, I suppose higher ranking roles than I was in who have helped me. But equally, you definitely need those male allies in and around you to also sort of bounce off of, learn from, because actually, you know, just being a professional in any environment, it doesn't matter whether you're female or male. Um, but having just a good mentor is really important, I think, to just open up the doors to to show you what you can be capable of. And I think they're the people that, you know, really can make massive impacts on individuals' careers as everyone moves forward. Um, so I definitely agree with Vicky. I've had exactly the same experiences as well, where it doesn't matter. It just has to, people just have to be there to mentor, I think, in the first place. That's really important. Mm. Emma, what's been yeah, your experience? I was, oh, go ahead. Um, I was reflecting on this actually in advance of the, um, the, the podcast, and I realised actually in, in my time in aviation, which probably 
five, six years now, something like that. Um, all of my line managers have been female, which was quite surprising. I had, hadn't really ever reflected on that. And in such a male-dominated industry, it was very interesting to look back and realise that at each step of the way in all of the different roles and teams I've been in and, and companies I've been in, that everyone I've reported to has been a woman. And actually, to Sophie's point about seeing it and therefore it's possible, um, I think I think that's something really important because while there might not be barriers put in your way as such, if you see someone else that's already overcome them, you don't even realise that the barrier might be there, if, if that makes sense. Um, and so that was a really interesting reflection. And, and I think to echo the, the others, I think having someone who can point out the things that you are not aware of and encourage you to push the boundaries. And I think that's one of the things that I've really noticed here at ANSL actually in the last couple of years is, is having that support to encourage you to to push the boundaries that you've put in place for yourself. So challenge yourself to, for me, to speak out a bit more, find my voice, have a presence, um, and to really develop in places you didn't realise you were limiting yourself in um, and having someone point those out for you and, and realise that actually you can develop in that space. It's just that you were holding yourself back or you hadn't realised you were holding yourself back. And and I found, I found that, that having the mentoring to help you see that and help you... And to give you the confidence to push into those spaces, for me, has been has been a really big difference. Uh, Sharon, how much do you think that the motivation for for personal development and career development um, comes from the individual, and how much is sort of facilitated by the company itself? You know, are are, are you on your own, or is there more broad support from the company itself? Um. You know, speaking for myself, I think we are in a very unique company um, and I'm very honoured to be part of that. I I just want to interrupt just just really quickly because as you all listening know that, you know, we record this uh, on a service that gives us uh, a video of each of the participants, which you don't see. But what I can see is... All the other uh, women here are shaking, are nodding their heads in agreement, <laughs> Sharon. So sorry to interrupt, but uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I think, you know, I've worked in many different places and nowhere that I've worked has given me uh, not not just the space, but the confidence, knowing that there is there is someone behind you that really has your back. Um, and that is willing you to do better and is is not, you know, is not judging you in any way, is not jealous of you in any way, you know, really, truly are happy for your development. And and that just does that, you know, that comes from the top down. So uh, we open a lot of doors for people. We, we do have mentoring. Um, we have personal development plans in place for people, you know, really going, what do you want to do? Um, and and within our, you know, as much as we can, trying to enable that pathway to happen um, and then have external mentors as well. That that really has just been one of the most excruciating and amazing experiences that I've ever been through. Um, and you do grow from that because I think instinctively as a woman, you do suffer from imposter syndrome. You do th- you do have this inner voice holding you back going oh and I do and I don't know why but I think it is a 
a real difference between men and women where I think most men would go, oh, I don't know that bit of my role, but I'll bluff it. You know, I'll get it anyway and then I'll I'll figure it out. Whereas we go, oh, there's that small bit of that job that I don't know how to do, so I won't apply. I remember in my interview and Henry, the MD, you know, I said, Henry, I'm just telling you now that I don't know this bit of my, you know, this bit of the job description that you've given me. I, I've had no um, previous experience in it. So just giving you a heads up that, you know, so you don't have a, you know, a, a bad impression if you give me the job and I can't do it. Um, but he said, no, no, it's fine, Sharon. You know, you'll, you'll be fine. It's really easy. Um, and so, you know, and I think that's, that is a, a real difference between men and women. It is, I don't, and I don't know why, um, because it shouldn't be the case. That really, really resonates well with me because uh, I, I look at it as, as a confidence issue almost. And when I think back on the, on the, on the women that I've mentored or helped with their career in the past, that's probably the, the main theme that, that I've seen. And it's not encouraging, uh, encouraging them to uh, fake it until you make it, but it's that, no, you, you have the, the skills, the things that you don't know how to do right now, but you have the background, you have the, the, the skills and the intelligence to, to figure out how to, you know, how to do something or how to approach something or, or whatever. But I find that just very common, not in all cases, but fairly common that it's the need to build confidence that um, really, really seems to help. Um, and of course, that's not limited to, to just women. I mean, but uh, uh, I, I think it is more prevalent um, among women. Are there things that uh, you might have done differently, Emma, from the perspective of uh, advancing your career? I mean, now that you're a few more years into it, if you were going to go back and do something different, do you, is there anything like that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because the immediate thought. My immediate thought is, well, yes, I go, I've gone, gone straight into aviation because I found where I fit and I found the role. And, you know, that's that's the immediate answer that comes to my mind. But actually, kind of alluding back to, to what I mentioned, I mean, I think everything, all the different twists and turns that I've gone down and the different avenues I've explored, they've all given me something that has helped my development or or, or driven me down a slightly different route that's enabled me to, to get where I am now. And so... I don't think I would. Um, you know, I'd love to have, <laughs> this, this probably speaks volumes. You know, I feel like if I'd have started where I am that bit earlier, I'd be further. But then at the end of the day, that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things because all those things have, have taken me to where I am. And, and I'm extremely pleased and proud, I guess, of, of where I am and where I've worked up to. So I don't think I would in hindsight. I think and this touches on what Sharon's saying. Actually, I think the other, the only thing I would change is that I wish I'd have found some of that confidence and the ability to step into the space that was there or I could have made for myself a little bit earlier. Um, I think, I think I could have had a bit more of a presence or more of a voice or more of a, I could have driven more, um, earlier on if I'd have, if I'd have pushed myself to do so. Yeah. Interesting. Sophie, anything that uh, you think back on that you might have approached differently? Yeah, for sure. I think um, I, I agree with Emma. I think everything that I've con I've 
completed up to date would have, have led me to this space, right? So I completely believe in that process of, um, you know, you change and you grow. I think for me, I had studied, I think, the wrong degree when I left university, when I left, um, sorry, school. I went to business and property to begin with um, and absolutely hated it and just pushed through and did it because I was mounting up student debt and I wanted something to actually leave with rather than solely the debt. So I carried on. Um, And actually, I think what I'd have liked to have done differently was to have paused, stopped. What did I want to do? What did this mean? What should I go pursue next if I don't think that is the right thing to do? Um, So I, I kind of regret not doing that earlier but I think that's really hard to do at sort of 18 19 years old is to is to have the maturity to to sit there and go I'm not enjoying this and instead of just giving up and saying it's failed actually just truly think what did I what do I want to be doing um what ended up happening was I joined London Underground and did another degree in civil engineering which I loved so for me it was why didn't I do that four years ago kind of um you know the position I was in but actually as Emma said I look back on it now without having that in the back of my mind now knowing that sorry now knowing that I can make decisions going forward probably in a much better place because I've had that experience so I think it's um, I think it's a double-edged sword, really, which is I'd love to have changed it and I've started potentially my career in the way that I wanted to sooner. But in the grand schemes, I'm a much better person for going through that um, initially and then learning from it as well. Vicky, is there any advice that you would give to uh, young women who are, who are entering the workforce? Yeah, I think um, any kind of industry they choose to go into, they shouldn't feel that they can't do anything. They should explore, open up their minds and really go and go for it. You know, so confidence is a huge thing. Uh, I do think that um, I can't speak for all women in a- in ATC, but the ladies that I've definitely come across are very strong, confident women and they do drive their agendas forward. Um, you know, I, and I think you shouldn't be dictated to just gender specific if it's something you want to do, you've got a passionate toward, passion towards it, you should absolutely just go for it. Um, and it will make you happy. Do what makes you happy. If aviation makes you happy, do it. Aviation put a massive smile on my face. You know, when I, when I first went into that tower, I didn't know I was going to feel that way. And it was just, yeah, it was amazing. It was overwhelming. So absolutely. And don't have any regrets. You know, things happen for a reason. Um, you go through your career in a, in a certain way and it's all learning it, it's character building and it gives you the confidence you need I absolutely if I look back would I've been as confident as I am today doing what I'm doing for a company that is very innovative and um, give you the autonomy that you deserve to drive things forward five years 10 years 15 years ago definitely not you know I was absolutely in the right time of my career to do what I needed to do and so everything can be quite scary especially when you're young but uh, if you don't give it a go you just don't know yeah i think that's good advice a comment that sharon made earlier about it being uh, coming from the top down um really i think is uh, a great point and it sounds like ansl um has that sort of in their dna from that perspective but uh, one thing that's come up is uh, this this organization we are the city and I really don't know much about it, but I just understand it's a 
it offers career development resources for women, I guess. But is this something that, that ANSL is involved in? Yeah, we've had some involvement in it. Um, I currently um, uh, look after the Women in Aviation Charter um, that we've signed, that the business has signed. So I look after our outputs of that. And um, and some of that is just celebrating the women we have in our business. And we are the city actually provide um, an opportunity for us to celebrate that through awards and, as you say, other resources and items like that where we can, um, I suppose, genuinely celebrate them, celebrate the women by putting them up for awards, particularly in transport, right? Because I think that's something that is quite a niche market to be going out for when you're in air traffic control, you're in transport, you could be defined as logistics, you know, there's all sorts of stuff. And then you look at what Emma does from a business intelligence perspective, and and they do that as well. And then you look at what Sharon does from a finance perspective. And actually, what we were able to do this year was uh, nominate I think about five of our staff, five, six members of our staff this year for the We Are City Awards, but across the finance and the business intelligence and data and then ATC banner as well. Um, So I think what they do is definitely bring together um, various different, um, I suppose, elements of a business like ours that have different arms to it, but definitely show off the fact that it's still one business and we still achieve very, you know, we still achieve our NSP license. We still achieve all of the other items that we do, we bring to the market, but with all of these women, you know, not just an air traffic controller, not just with an engineer. There's lots of women that sit behind that, that, that still sort of the business can still move on and, and use going forward. Yeah, it seems like um, an interesting uh, organization, I guess. We are the city. I had not encountered that uh, before. Is that something local, regional? No, I think it's quite, I think it's international, actually. I think it's, it's yeah, I think it's, um, I don't, I can't remember exactly, but I believe it started with the financial industry. So I believe you've got the likes of City and, yeah, the City of London pulled it together, I think, f- to celebrate women within finance. I think initially noting some of the challenges that, I mean, most industries have, let's be, let's be clear, um, around diversity and, and um, inclusion. And then they've branched that out quite, as I say, quite considerably into all sorts of different um, industries now, um, which, like I say, for us kind of works because we have all those wonderful women that work for the company that we can then go and celebrate without sort of still having to be under the ANSP banner that might not not normally get recognised. All right. Well, I think this has been a pretty interesting conversation. Uh, and I really want to thank all of you for spending a little bit of time for, for our listeners. Now, uh, just statistically, most of our listeners are men uh, because, well, that's the makeup of the industry to a large extent. So we'll start with uh, with Sharon, and I'll ask if uh, you, you have any suggestions or advice maybe for the men who are listening. Um, Not to I make think... it a gender war or anything yeah. like that, but, you know, I, some... I... <laughs> but this um, is your opportunity if that's what yeah, you yeah. like. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's... And I do think it has changed, you know, through COVID and things like that. Um, but it, it is flexibility and it's autonomy. It's having that flexibility to go, I've I've got to pick up the kids or I've I've got to do something family related or you know, but I know my deadlines and I will work around that. Um I once had a um a job opportunity that didn't work out because 
I couldn't get there and back in time for the school run. Um, I would have worked later. I would have worked weekends to make up for that. But because you're not in the office and you're not sat at your desk during those times and you don't have this presentism or whatever it's called, um, you kind of get disregarded for that. So um, it's just be more flexible um, because it will repay you tenfold in just output and people staying with you. Uh, Vicky, how about you? And if you don't like my question, you can just you know use this as an opportunity for any closing comments that you'd like to make. <laughs> um, I think uh, my advice would be don't be surprised when a woman walks in through the door, you know? Hmm. Um, and that, that would be my only, my only gift to them would be you shouldn't see gender, right? Um, somebody's got their, their professional right taken time and put the effort in and they speak the expertise and they walk the walk it shouldn't really matter what gender they are so just don't be surprised when a woman walks through the door in a you know in a managerial role or in an advice uh, or consultation role because that often happens and it is still quite shocking how often that happens like oh my god I didn't believe that you know uh, well you'd be doing that well why not hmm. You know, that would be my only gift to them. It's amazing to me how things have changed. I'm, I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm like a really old guy. Um, my, uh, my first job after college, after university, was in uh, 1978, right? So that, that dates me. And I was applying at one company and wasn't really sure what the position was that they were thinking about possibly offering me. And I got the question, do you work well with women? And I'm thinking, that's, that, that's kind of an odd question. And I said, well, <laughs> yes, which was true. It was a, a managerial position in a department that was made up entirely of women. It was like about, I don't know, 30, 35 women. But just the question, you know, do you work well with women, I thought was... Well, it represented a mindset that I like to think is in the past. Fast forward to the, let's see, this would have been the uh, 1990s. And um, I was in a business development role. And it was just me in this function, but I, I was going to uh, hire someone to work with me to help me. And I interviewed a number of different candidates. And uh, there was this one particular woman that I thought really, really had a lot of opportunity and a lot of skills and had been sort of underappreciated in terms of what value she could bring to the company. This job involves a lot of international travel. And when I went to my director with my selection for this position, which was this woman, he looked at me kind of funny and he said, you know, she's going to want to travel. And my jaw almost hit the floor. It was like, well, yeah, that's the job. And he was coming from this from the standpoint of, yeah, but can a woman really travel professionally, internationally? You know, it just blew my mind. Now, so that was a long time ago. He's probably dead by now, but uh, so I can <laughs> I can relate the story. But but I guess I guess where I'm going with this is that it's easy to look at the history of women in professional positions 
and say that, you know, that the changes have been enormous. We have come so far. But it's easy to be kind of jaded by that and not always realize that, yeah, but things are not completely equal in all respects everywhere anyway. And we have to kind of keep our eyes open to that and try to continue to make um, improvements. So, all right. So that's that's my little uh, my little story. Um, who did I, Emma, did, did I ask you for any closing thoughts? So, yeah, I would kind of take further what Vicky said. I think um, the piece around not seeing the gender and just seeing a an individual, um, a professional in their environment, I think is is huge. I think it can come through when someone some someone sees you rightly as the professional that, that you are in that environment versus when someone sees you as your gender. Um, and I think you can sometimes feel that come through. So I think that's um, that would be a, a takeaway I would offer. Um, and the other piece is just around creating an open, safe environment, I think, like making it okay to fail, okay to get things wrong or okay to not be 100% perfect every single time and just the environment to to try things and to to push to, for people to be able to push themselves and develop and, and just give things a go. Um, I think having that supportive environment is, is huge. Who didn't, Sharon, did I ask you if you had any? Yeah, Sophie. Sophie. For me, it's just a case of being, um, being an ally and being a person that anyone could go to really. It doesn't have to be female, but um, that anyone can go to, that any any support can be required because I think we're all um, human. We all have lives going on outside of work. And I think actually if we can make the professional workplace a more enjoyable and safer space for um, women, then the output from that is going to be absolutely massive. Um, I think we're seeing that within ANSL on the basis that, you know, we have people within our business where we are open with one another about what we need to do. We've just set up our diversity, equity and inclusion committee as well. And that's really driving that piece around if the challenge, if there are things that haven't um, changed yet, what could they change to your point earlier? So I think be that ally, be that person that that's empathetic, uh, empathetic and can support um, your colleague. Because I, I agree with what Vicky said. I think uh, it's inevitable. Um, the women are coming. They'll be there. Um, and actually, they just need help and support along the way, um, just like anybody else would, uh, no matter their background. All right. Very good. Well, we want to thank all of you for, for joining us, Sharon, Sophie, Vicky, and Emma. The uh, website for ANSL Air Navigation Solutions Limited, of course, is ans-atc.com. Girls in Aviation Day is at Women in Aviation International, and uh, their website, of course, is wai.org. We've talked about them a lot and had some uh, representatives from their leadership team on the show before, and you can learn more about Girls in Aviation Day there, wai.org. And We Are the City is at uh, just exactly that, wearethecity.com. And I also found a couple of uh, ANSL promotional videos on, on YouTube. There's actually a YouTube channel there. And we'll have some of those links in the show notes so you can uh, see what, uh, what they have produced on YouTube. So I want to thank all of you for for joining us for this episode. I think it's been a fun and interesting conversation. Maybe a few things for people to think about, maybe some advice for, for people as well. And so to uh, all of you, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Max. Thank you. Again, ANSL's website is ans 
atc.com. Women in Aviation International, of course, is wai.org. And you can learn more about Girls in Aviation Day at the WAI site or specifically at wai.org slash G-I-A-D. stands for Girls in Aviation Day. And finally, the site for We Are the City is wearethecity.com. Up next, Hillel Glazier, our aviation entrepreneurship and innovation correspondent, brings us another interview in his Beyond the Press release series. This time, it's with J.J. Friggy, the president of Hartzell Propeller, recorded at EAA AirVenture Oshkosh 2022. This is Hillel Glazer, innovation and entrepreneurship correspondent for the Airplane Geeks podcast. I'm in Oshkosh for AirVenture 2022, which is in full swing. I'm here with and have the pleasure of speaking with J.J. Friggy, president of Hartzell Propellers. J.J., thank you for making time to speak with me and our Airplane Geeks audience. Absolutely. My pleasure to be here. So if I were a pilot with a Hartzell prop on, say, a 50-year-old plane, for example, like what I'm curious, what is Hartzell doing today for customers like me and users like me in my market with that going on? I know you're doing a ton going into like composites and new aircraft, and you play a big role in a lot of introductions. But there's a whole lot of planes on the North 40, yes. <laughs> and uh, and they're and they've got some old equipment on there, and they could probably use some help. Is there stuff that you're doing that you can really speak to for them? Absolutely, it's a great question, and. What I would say is that um, we have a very strong interest in keeping airplanes in the air. And so if you have a 50-year-old airplane with a 50-year-old propeller, we still have parts for that propeller. So if you need it overhauled or you need it repaired, we've got the parts that, that you need to complete that overhaul and get you airborne. However, if you're interested in something newer, something maybe that performs a little better or something a little bit lighter, we also have options for that. So over the past 105 years, since we started making propellers for the Wright brothers, uh, we have really consistently innovated our way to new and better propellers using technology, using our, our analysis and, and flight testing capability that we have to design better airfoils. And so in many cases, you may have a kind of a standard paddle style prop from 50 years ago that you could upgrade for a scimitar design, uh, continuing to be a metal weighted prop. Or in some cases, you could get upgrade to a carbon fiber lightweight propeller that'll perform better and is a little bit uh, has a little bit less weight on the nose. So, you know, we all know that in the certificated world, uh, the engine and everything about the plane goes through a lot of testing, certification, a lot of uh, regulation and paperwork. And I have the engine that came with the plane, or a, you know, a several overhauls ago. Sure. And the prop on it were matched at the time of type certification. So if I wanted to go into something lighter, better design, better performance, what's the process for that? Right. So at Hartzell, we're staffed to support through our engineering team and our design team, um, the type certificated propeller that goes on the original airplane, as well as we have the capability to design standalone propellers that we could then issue an STC for on our own, which is a supplemental type certificate which is basically a new propeller onto an existing airframe. So it's a way for us to bring refreshed propeller options with better performance to existing aircraft. We call that our top prop program here at Hartzell. And we have over 100 different options based on what airframe you have, what engine you have, 
we can find a propeller via an STC, Supplemental Type Certificate, that'll provide better performance for your airplane. So chances are, correct me if I'm wrong, if I have a standard off-the-line you know line aircraft with its original engine or well, an overhauled version, whatever, but it's the, it's the type of engine that the plane was certificated in, does it have to go through that entire process to get a new propeller? Or is there probably some list of engines and planes that you can just put an existing design on without having to go through all the non-recurring engineering to get a special custom built propeller for it? So a propeller is a type certificated project under, uh, sorry, a type certificated product under FAA certification standards, part 35. So what that means is each propeller needs to be type certificated on its own accord, unless you have an experimental airplane and then we're into a whole different world. But let's talk about the standard, standard Cessnas, Beechcrafts, Pipers, all that sort of thing that, that falls into the standard type certificated world. Um, hopefully, that airplane, when it came off the production line, had a Hartzell propeller on it with the engine and the airframe. Um, now, what we do is we do go through quite a bit of engineering design work, certification work, and then flight testing to issue a supplemental type certificate for that airplane and engine combination with the propeller that we're that we're certificating. So if someone's plane came off the line with a different propeller that wasn't a Hartzell, is it a, automatically a tougher road or is it just there may be some things that are catalog available for that? Negative. Yeah, it's definitely not a harder road. That's really obviously where we like to focus is is putting Hartzell props onto airplanes that don't have Hartzell props, right? So uh, we definitely are able to do that through our engineering process and our, our certification process. And, you know, we, we've We've been able to bring quite a few uh, new propellers, better technology to market in that area. Is it uh, at all competitive? So let's say a prop is going up for overhaul. It's time to get a you know a new one, basically, or an overhauled one. Is that the point at which they should start having a conversation if they wanted to switch to a, a more updated prop from a different manufacturer? Yes, that's absolutely right. So that that overhaul event or repair event is typically. Uh, the most competitive cycle in in the aircraft life. So, uh, for sure, uh, we want to be we want to win on performance, quality, and support, and we want to win on lead times and availability and value and all those things that matter to customers. About how soon uh, before going into that event should they start the conversation? You don't want to wait till it actually gets off the plane before you start talking about it. That's right. But sometimes, you know, you're hoping you can just get an overhaul, and you realize that well, it's been ten years since I've even looked at the prop and. Uh, I'm having some some major parts fall out of spec. So um, instead of a $4,000 overhaul, it might be, hey, it's going to be a $12,000 overhaul. And for 13, you can have a whole new prop. So it's it's really varies based on what the what the aircraft owner uh, is thinking going into the event. Um, but but typically, the the good news is for us that we we like to have very short lead times at that point of sale. So we're typically able to ship within a week of of a, of a call or, or an order. Um, but because demand is so strong right now, we're, we're a bit extended on lead times, but our goal is to be able to ship within a few days. Well, that's cool. So enough about me. Um, <laughs> so why don't you, uh, for those of us or those of our listeners who aren't really super familiar with the world of propellers, um, why don't you, if you don't mind, describe maybe some of the biggest differences between the propellers of 50 years ago and the propellers of today that are going on the newer aircraft or that are available. Um, not, there's, it's, it's not as simple a thing as people might imagine, as I think you can say that about aviation in general. And, and then when you get down to the details of, of you know, the propeller within aviation and all that, there's even less knowledge about that. So why don't you, could you mind educating our listeners about that? Yeah, what I like to say is that physics don't change. So... 
um, you know, the aerodynamic principles that applied 50 years ago, 80 years ago are still there. But how we're able to innovate is by using better materials and having better analytical tools. So, you know, we've evolved from a natural wood propeller, uh, walnut is what we started with back in 1917 to. You were there back then? I was not, but, but, uh, you know, I, I uh, am proud to say that we have quite a bit of longevity in our company and we, we do have, uh, you know, lots of folks that have been around 10, 20, 30, 40 years even, um, with Hartzell prop, but nevertheless, um, material properties have certainly advanced and we've gone from walnut wood to aerospace grade aluminum, which we still do today to now carbon fiber. And that's enabled us to make a wider cord, thinner airfoil, and better performing uh, from a sweep and design standpoint to, to be able to enhance aircraft performance across all flight spectrums, whether that's takeoff, climb, or cruise. And so what we like to do with our engineering team is design analytically the prop that is specifically tuned for the mission. You know, a Mooney guy wants to go fast. A cub guy wants to get off the ground. A backcountry guy wants to climb out. So we're able to tune the prop for specifically what that mission profile looks like for that application. Which is a good segue into asking at what point does the company, this Hartzell prop, get involved with, say, an engine maker or an airframer in the introduction of a new plane? Like, when do they start talking to you guys? Ideally, we're one of the big three. So we consider ourselves to be uh, staffed to 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 be involved in the upstream process with the aircraft manufacturer and the engine manufacturer. And the prop is really the third piece from a mechanical standpoint. Um, and so again, we're designing around what the drag of the airplane is, what the horsepower of the engine is, and what the mission profile from the manufacturer that they want it to be. Do they want it to be a climb prop, a cruise prop? Do they want to go fast? Do they want to get off the ground quick? So ideally, you know, we have a staff of 40 plus engineers in, in our company and, and we're able to when we're really hitting on all cylinders, be involved in that upstream process so that we can influence the design. And speaking of design, there's kind of a truism in aviation and aerospace that if it looks pretty, it works pretty. <laughs> and one of the things that you can definitely see in the new designs is just they're just they're 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 works of art. You'd you'd want to make you know blow one out of glass and put it on the wall, and they're really gorgeous. So um, there's. There's something to be said for all the new capabilities, material-wise and manufacturing-wise. What, so what's like the most, the the latest uh, material or manufacturing process innovation that you've been able to take advantage of that may not have existed even five or so years ago? So that's a great question, and and what I would say is, you know, we're we continue to evolve. Carbon fiber uh, composite technologies is exploding in terms of growth and demand and market, and so you know. Uh, even a handful of years ago, we had six people working in our composite building, and now we have 60 on our way to more. And so um, that that market segment, it provides lower weight. It provides a little bit smoother and quieter um, than some of our traditional metal propellers, and it looks really sexy on the ramp. You know, I, I, as you said, some of these things are a work of art. When you put a little sweep on them, it looks five knots faster just on the ramp. <laughs> sure. So with the introduction of composites into the manufacturing and um development of a new blade uh, just a few years ago that wasn't possible that you just composites weren't where they needed to be to be able to spun around at 3500 rpms and not fall apart um, so how long ago was it that you really could take advantage of composite materials and and how much of the actual blade is composite 
Yeah, that's a great question. So we actually have two different composite manufacturing processes. We call our legacy business something that goes all the way back into the late 70s from a certification standpoint. And, and that was using more of a pre-pregged uh, laminate uh, where the, the resin is, is impregnated into the sheets of laminate and we lay that up over a, a, a foam core. And, and you're talking, you know, a couple dozen layers of, of layup and then it gets into, uh, you know, pressure, uh, vessel with, with, uh, some heat and it, it basically cooks through the, the heat cycle. Today, what we're doing is a dry carbon fiber sock again over a foam core with some stainless steel parts and a nickel cobalt leading edge. And really, uh, what we've done uniquely at Hartzell is be able to keep manufacturing complexity and costs in the moderate to mild range, but also develop and deliver a type certified blade. That's important because all of our customers, the vast majority, are wanting something that passes FAA certification criteria. Um, and certainly that's a requirement for any, any type certificated airplane. Um, but what I would say the keys for us are continuous improvement. You know, we've just consistently edged out our portfolio and gotten a little bit better technology wise over the, over the past 15, 20, 30 years. And we're on our next generation composites. And as we look to the future, uh, we're actively now starting to work on what's generation three look like. How can we get a little bit lighter? How can we get a little bit less expensive? How can we still maintain those certification criteria? Because quality and safety are our number one goals. Um, to what extent, like how much change, this may be not a question you can easily answer, but how much could you stretch current designs and improvements before you have to go through a whole new type certification process? We are having that conversation as we speak. Our engineering team is is looking at our current processes and saying, how can we lean that out with some automation? But we're also looking at what does a clean sheet design look like? Because we think that's where the market's going with advanced air mobility, with electric vertical takeoff. You're going to need potentially six, eight, 12 propeller units per vehicle uh, in some cases where you've got distributed power. And, and certainly cost is going to be a big factor. However, again, uh, Type certification and safety is is going to be the number one criteria. And so we're looking at taking our core design principles that we have today, applying them in a new way to, to develop a, a whole new process that, that we know we can follow from a roadmap and technology standpoint. So I imagine that because of the certification processes and everything, it's not just that the, the design has to be certificated, so to speak, but so does the engineering manufacturing processes. All that stuff has to meet regulation. That's right. So you can design it all you want, but if you can't make it, you've got problems. So we, we also integrate designing for manufacturability into our process and, and, and loop that cycle back with not only our engineers on the design side, but our certification team and our production team to make sure that we've got something that, that wins all the way through that life cycle. Enough nerdy stuff. <laughs> you know, a lot of what makes a podcast successful is the people side of the relationship you know, between the microphones and the speakers. Um, so as it said, you come to Oshkosh and do a lot of things in aviation for the planes maybe once. And then after that, you come for the people. So let's learn a little bit about you. How did you end up in this role? Let's, I'll just tell the listeners, the guy's not old. And <laughs> he's the president of, of, J, of our Hartzell Propellers. So uh, are you a pilot? Let's start with that. Unfortunately not. You know, I, uh, when I was a, a kid, I had the, the Navy and Air Force, uh, airplanes and, and pilots on my wall as who I wanted to be. Uh, but I, I didn't make that happen. And, and, and in today's world, uh, with the family and, and a lot of responsibility, I just haven't gotten over the hump of, of getting my flight training finished yet. 
Sounds like a lot of excuses to me. What do you think, people? It's terrible. terrible. I know it's on the it's on the list. It's just not quite high enough, and that is a poor excuse. Who do we talk to about that? (laughs) Seriously, on that note, though, um, were you always like a a nav geek? Were you always into that? You mentioned the Navy and the Air Force influence, but was this like is this the tentacle of your aspirations, or just kind of fall backwards into it? You know, I would say that I, looking back. Uh, I used to go to the Dayton Air Show. I'm, I'm from, you know, Ohio, Southwest Ohio, Midwest, born and raised. And Dayton Air Show was a big deal. Uh, we'd go see the Navy airplanes, the Air Force airplanes, watch the Blue Angels, Thunderbirds. And and again, it was something that I, I, I really, really liked when I was younger. Um, didn't pursue that uh, through through high school and college and started my career at Procter & Gamble, which uh, in the Cincinnati area is, you know, a big manufacturing company. And Spent a, spent about ten years there, and then and then decided uh, that you know the opportunity with Hartzell Propeller was something that was really interesting to me. I was coming in as a as a marketing and and general management track, um, actually the controller, and I would say you know worked my way up over the past ten years here at Hartzell, about ten years in to the you know to the president's chair two years ago, two and a half years ago, and. Um, I guess that's a long-winded version of saying there were some early indications that I this would be something I really enjoy, but I sort of fell my way back into it. That's cool. So let's do the math. Two and a half years ago, that wasn't anything like a tumultuous time in anybody's history, was it? January of 2020 is when I was promoted. COVID broke 60 days later, and you know it's not been the world's been different ever since. Yeah. And, you know, it's tough to make that call, but a lot of people can say that when you have to buckle down and rethink everything, usually we, you know, a lot of tragedies happen, but a lot of good things come out of that too. I would certainly agree with that. It's been something that you just don't train for. You don't prep for, you just sort of make the best you can of each day and, and trust the people that you work with and, and do the best you can. Can't, can't argue there. So is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know that we haven't really covered? Well, you know, Hartzell is a company that isn't just a bunch of airplane, sorry, propeller geeks, if you will. Um, we really love aviation. We have, you know, a company of 350 people and we've got about 25, 30 active pilots. We have our own flying club uh, with some aircraft that the company lets folks use. And and we, we also sponsor pilot training. So for us, it's not just, uh, you know, propeller business. It's it's a passion. And so being here at Oshkosh this week is, is great. We've got... Uh, over 30 people from Hartzell here on the ground meeting with customers and working on uh, the next platforms that we're investing in and, and designing and uh, supplying propellers to to companies all over the world. Uh, we'd like to say we're a little company in the cornfields of Southwest Ohio with a huge global footprint uh, everywhere. So, you know, if, if, if you need help from a tech support side or if you have questions about what top props we have available, Oshkosh is a place to be. And, uh, you know, you can certainly find friends and talk about airplanes here all day long. Yeah, I don't think people who haven't been here can truly get to appreciate the scale of it. And the there's just never a shortage of what to talk about. So, JJ, I appreciate you taking the time out of a very busy schedule. I had to yank you off a pretty place on the roof. And I appreciate that you came down. And thanks for all the information and have a great show. Thanks a lot. It's great to uh, be with you and hope you have a great week. Thank you very much. And again, for the Airplane Geeks, this is Hillel Glazer from Aviation Heaven, AirVenture Oshkosh 2022. Take care. Again, find Hartzell Propeller at hartzellprop.com, H-A-R-T-Z-E-L-L-P-R-O-P.com. Thanks, JJ and Hillel.
I'm going to sneak in a little listener feedback here. First, we heard from Jacob. He says he's 12, and he emailed us to say he found facts about Airbus from JetlineMarvel.net, and also top 10 interesting facts about Airbus. That was at aerotime.aero. The facts at Jetline Marvel are about Airbus generally, and those at Aerotime are about the A380 specifically. And that piece also has some more facts that you can find in some YouTube videos. One thing I thought was interesting, the A380 has 320 miles of wiring. That's kind of amazing. And do you know how much paint is required to paint the exterior of an A380? More than 3,600 liters. That's about 951 gallons. And I did a little estimating and I calculated that that represents about 8,500 pounds of paint. I knew it was a lot. That's an awful lot. So thanks, Jacob, for sending those links along. We'll have those in the show notes. Also, uh, this is from a press release. The Whirly Girls Scholarship Program is open. Female aviators can apply for scholarships valued at more than $110,000 for helicopter flight training and education. The awards are available for both experienced and newly rated pilots. So applications should be completed online, and they're due on October 2nd, 2022. So that's coming up pretty quickly. Scholarships will be awarded in March 2023 at the annual Whirly Girls Award Banquet. That's at HAI Heli Expo in Atlanta, Georgia. So we'll have a link where you can learn scholarship details and other information about it, but it's at whirlygirls.org slash current hyphen scholarship hyphen offerings. And as I said, that link will be in the show notes. Also, Whirly Girls Scholarship Fund Incorporated is an affiliate member of Helicopter Association International. And finally on that, this year's scholarship sponsors include Airbus, Bristow Helicopters, Central Oregon Community College, Colorado Highland Helicopters, Ericsson, Flight Safety International, Garmin, Leading Edge Flight Academy, MD Helicopters, Oregon Aero, PHI Aviation, Robinson Helicopter Company, I like Robinson's, Southern Utah University, Survival Systems USA, Volo Mission, as well as many private individuals. And then we got an email from John Mollison. John was a guest. Maybe he's been on a couple of times, but it, it's been a while. And he says over the next 12 months, many thousands of Vietnam War veterans will be experiencing their, quote, 50th anniversary since the end of their war. Now, highly decorated Vietnam War combat aviator is going to be honored in Pierre, South Dakota, Artwork of the five-time Distinguished Flying Cross recipient Wade Hubbard's F-4E Phantom II fighter will be unveiled at Pier Regional Airport's Eagles Gallery, and uh, Hubbard himself will attend. Well, the Pier Regional Airport's the Eagles Gallery, it features artwork and artifacts pertaining to aircraft flown by historically significant South Dakota veterans. And they will accept the latest edition on Friday, September 16th at a presentation event from 4.30 to 5.45 p.m. The public is invited with special emphasis on Vietnam War veterans and their families. 
Now, as for Hubbard, he accumulated a remarkable 439 combat missions. He survived being shot down over enemy-held Cambodia and was awarded five distinguished flying crosses, as well as the Purple Heart Medal. The artwork is of a particular F-4 Phantom II jet that played an extraordinary role during Hubbard's notable military service. Artist John Mullison believes Vietnam War veteran stories can provide powerful inspiration for the future. This is a quote from him. The Vietnam War contains highly valuable stories that can make people today more successful in business, politics, and community life. Their history has often been misunderstood and hidden under myth and inconvenience. We overlook their voice at our peril, but when we listen and learn, we can grow so much stronger for tomorrow. The event will have a social hour from 4.30 to 5.15, followed by the artwork unveiling and featured remarks from Hubbard. So for more information on this event, you can contact the Pier Fort Pier Rotary Club via Corey Christensen at 605-681-7343 or John Mollison. And you can reach him by email, john at johnmollison.com. That's M-O-L-L-I-S-O-N.com. Number is 605-261-6070. And if you haven't checked out John's webpage, you really need to. It's called Old Guys and Their Airplanes. And if you've heard John on this podcast before, you know that he tells historical stories. He captures the stories of notable airmen from the past. But John, being an artist, he creates a really spectacularly beautiful rendering of the the aircraft that um, that pilot flew. And it's not just a generic image of the aircraft. It is specifically the airplane that they flew is what he captures in his artwork. So check that out. That's oldguysandtheirairplanes.com. If you haven't been there, just do me a favor. Just go and take a look. I think you'll be kind of amazed. All right. Thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We've got more good interviews in the coming weeks. We want to thank our guests from ANSL. That was Sophie Mills, Sharon Udding, Vicki Bogle-Hunt, and Emma Hawksworth. And, of course, thanks to J.J. Friggy, president of Hartzell Propeller. You can find us and show notes for this episode at airplanegeeks.com. The direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 716. As always, you can reach us via email just write to the geeks at airplanegeeks.com. So please join us next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. <laughs> <laughs>